whether believer or unbeliever, and I'll explain that towards the end, is to submit to Christ's reign because of who he is, what he has done, and what he is about to do. That is a very serious reflection and meditation for us. The answer would naturally then spring to our minds, especially on the unbelieving side, why should I submit? Why should I submit to him as king? The answer to that is you're about to see. You're about to see why. You're going to find the answer in the text of God's word. But let me first offer a few words. Since last week we observed the Lord's Supper and we, we, we went to the three descriptions of who Christ is, three descriptions of what Christ has done, let me offer a few words about the book of Revelation. First of all, a word about strategy. What do we intend to do as we go through the book of Revelation? Uh, the strategy is not so much to talk about the book, but to show it to you. We won't answer every question. We won't offer every scholarly view. We won't interpret every detail. If that's your hope, as we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to be very disappointed. But we're going to receive this as a book to the church. John was commissioned to write the things that he saw and then take them to these churches. And there were seven churches. And and the way that the churches are listed would be the most likely direction that a courier would take the letter and deliver it to the churches. So what would the churches in John's day see and understand How how would they receive it? And then the big question is, what did it demand of them? How did it encourage them? How did it rebuke them? How did did it call them to action? So in a sense, my intent is to take you through the book of Revelation like I would take people through a game reserve for the first time or to Victoria Falls. And it is partly to guide and make sure that we're safely doing what we're doing, but at the same time to let those initial Pictures and vivid sights and sounds and smells have an effect upon them. And that's what we really desire the book of Revelation to do. It is God's breathed out words to us. It is the, the, the future according to its author and it is the end of things as we know it until we move into eternity. Here's a word about interpretation. Uh, I will approach this book as we approach every other book in the Bible, and that is in a characteristically literal fashion. By characteristically literal, I simply mean that a literal interpretation still recognizes the use of metaphor and uh, types of apocalyptic language and details. For example, uh, if I said to you that, uh, and this is not true, so this is we're all going to launch off. That last night at dinner, uh, one of my children ate like a pig. How do you interpret that? Do you think, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, there was a trough in front of him, and his little snout came out, and he just started, you know, pushing his face down into his food? No. How would you take a literal interpretation of what I just said? He ate like a pig. Not being a pig, not really having all those things, but this is what happens in every language. So when we see a woman riding a dragon, 
A characteristically literal interpretation will take it as John is seeing it and writing it, but it will also understand the use of language devices to explain things that he can't fully understand. Word about viewing Revelation in the larger biblical context. Um, you're coming to the last book of 66 books. It's all part of one story. And you can parachute down into Revelation and get a sense of what is going on without having read the first 65 books. Right? You can do that with a, with a very popular and well-written epic adventure tale back in the mid-1950s. Uh, it was actually three volumes that were then divided into six volumes. And you could jump into the final 150 pages of the sixth book and experience elves and orcs and human kings and dwarves. And you could get a sense that there's this battle, this cosmic battle between good and evil. And you could even enjoy the reading, but you're really not going to understand it. Like, you can't really fully value what's going on. It's not that it's not accurate and you're not understanding what he wrote, but you're not going to really value it until you go back all the way to the first book of the Lord of the Rings. The book of Revelation is the last in a 66-book series. This is God's story, future history according to its author. So if Revelation is the end of all things, it is essential for the sake of context to go back to the beginning of all things. That's why I've had you turn where? Genesis. So, Genesis chapter 1. Everything began with God who himself has no beginning. This must be grasped and believed. Genesis 1.1. God made the world and everything in it, including, well, everything, including humans, including you. Chapter 1, verse 27, God gave humans dominion over everything else that he had created, all of which was, according to verse 31, very good. So you have God who created all things, who had no beginning. He created all things for his glory. He gave humans dominion over everything else that he made, and it was good. And amidst all this beautiful creation that God had created, there was a single prohibition, one thing that he told Adam and Eve not to do. And then comes into the garden a serpent. We understand he's more than a snake, but he's never called that in Genesis. He's simply referred to as the serpent. And this serpent provokes doubts about God's character and motives. And he causes God's creation, the pinnacle of God's creation, Adam and Eve, to start to doubt and question God's goodness. And that is still the line down which Satan comes. He'll get you to cause who he is and what he is doing. Well, their whole relationship changed from one of friendship and fellowship to one of fear, distrust, and separation. Folded into the curse on the serpent, God is actually speaking to the snake, is a promise that one would come in the future born of a woman who would eventually crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. Now, among other consequences was a change not only in their relationship to God because they ran and hid, but in Genesis 4, verse 8, there was a change in their own inner being and nature. 
And you'll see that in Cain's killing of Abel. Genesis 11, you're already, you know, moving towards uh, the building of the tower. And this event marks the commencement of man's attempts to unify in opposition to God. And you're only in Genesis chapter 11, and the nations are rising up in opposition to God. And for this reason, let's build here a tower, a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the whole face of the earth. And yet, what was God's intention that they do? Be fruitful and multiply, spread, have dominion all around the earth. And this is a pattern that will continue throughout human history. Nations, opposition, sometimes unified opposition to God. Now, in Genesis 12 is a real shift uh, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11 is one first major section. Genesis 12, then to 50 is the second. But in Genesis 12, God then narrows down the focus of his previous promise that there would come one born of a woman who would crush, deliver a death, a fatal death blow to the serpent. And he narrows his purpose down to a single man and his name is Abraham. And not only that man and his descendants would be blessed, but all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Why? Because it will come, it will, it will, the, the Messiah, and that's a key term that's going to start to unfold, the seed and the Messiah will come through his lineage. And then we'll, who will be born, uh, we'll see in just a second. So that event marks the beginning of a divine division between then two people, Jews and Greeks. And in Exodus, you see that not only do they become a people, they become a nation. God calls them out. Now you have uh, the nation of the Israelites. Fast forward 1,000 years. And I just want you to remember this. You've got those chapters in Genesis. Now fast forward 1,000 years to Psalm 2. I actually want you to turn to Psalm 2. Because you'll see that after 1,000 years, nothing has changed among the nations. And nothing has changed among the purposes of God for human history. If you'll just look, we're not going to read it, but I want you to have it open so you can look at it. Psalm 1 to 3 recounts the history of Gentile nations ever since Genesis 11. Okay, the nations rage. They're in unified opposition against God. In verses 4 to 6, God's reaction to the world's conspiracy to cast off his rule is that he has a king over all these small k kings of the earth, and he will rule from Zion. Verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2, the king Messiah speaks, and you're actually going to see the language of that, those three verses. You're going to see that language appear in Revelation 5 and Revelation 19. And then here's the counsel to these smaller kings in verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2. Here's the counsel. You ready? Because this is good counsel. Be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. What do you mean kiss? Well, it could be most likely a picture of when an authoritative figure comes in with his ring and people bow down and pay homage and intensely kiss the ring and bow to his authority, recognize his kingship. And in this, it's very clearly the worship of the son. In Daniel 7, I won't have you turn there, 
Uh, and there's a lot of other Old Testament passages we could go to to start to build out the context of what is about to unfold for us in Revelation. But after recounting a succession of world empires, including a fourth terrible beast with ten horns, Daniel sees God the Father called the Ancient of Days enthroned above the world in the midst of millions of angels. And he says, and this is interesting because after he sees beast after beast after beast, then he sees one like a human. One like the son, different than the beasts. One like the Son of Man. Daniel's going to write in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Unlike the beasts, he's human like. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, after that vision, you're going to have the fourth terrible beast explained. And that's in Daniel 7, 23 to 27. But we're not going to look at that. Now, fast forward 500 more years. And in the Gospels, it announces the arrival of a Jew of the seed of Abraham. Interesting. His name is called Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his name, his earthly name. Christ is not his surname or his last name. It's a title. It's a description. It means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent for the Old Testament Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. So you have now Jesus the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. You have his miraculous birth of a virgin. You, of a virgin. you have his sinless life and selfish ministry as a prophet who, while he walked the earth, do you know what his favorite designation for himself was? It wasn't king of kings. And it wasn't Lord. His favorite designation for himself was son of man. You have a sacrificial death as the lamb of God. Another theme throughout Revelation, the lamb that was slain, the lamb that was slain. And then you have his victorious resurrection and ascension back to the father, waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and a promise that he would return. Now, one century after his birth, a hundred years after his birth, one of his faithful followers, John, now finds himself exiled to the salt mines of the Mediterranean island of Patmos, where he receives a series of visions. And he is told, not just write down what I say, but listen, write down what you see. That's the book of Revelation. Okay, so this is the progression all the way through. And the theme is the certain triumph of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth, the reclamation, the return, and the reign of the King of Kings. Okay, now, today's promotion Sunday, and I want to get our children involved. So I want everybody to find a one of our, it's only going to work if you, we all use the same Bible. Okay, so seven, I'm going to make this as painful as possible, okay? So take one of our Bibles that we provide, 17 years old and under, because we want to hear your voices. Moms, you may help your 16-year-olds. No, I was just kidding. I didn't have anybody in mind when I said that. But moms, you may help your little children. You can even, you know, point where they're supposed to read. I will not embarrass you. You can remain seated. Uh, so in our Bible, I'm on page 1,028. Okay, 1,028. And we are going to read together 
Revelation 1, 9 to 18. We'll do this like we do our responsive reading. I'll read the first verse and then I will read the next verse with you. And then I'll read the next verse alone and then you'll read the next verse with me. Okay. Revelation 1, chapter 9. I'll read verse 9. You join me on verse 10. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, together, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I'll read verse 11. Saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Good, thank you. We just read through, uh, you're going to see the setting in the commission. We've talked a bit about that. John is presented now not only as a servant, verse 1, but as a brother. This is, how he's, this is how he's writing to these churches that he has a heart for. I am your brother. I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And this is what we need to gather from the commission. The kingdom right now still involves tribulation and endurance. The kingdom right now is not the new heaven and the new earth. The kingdom right now involves opposition and hardship. And the proper response to tribulation is what? Patient endurance. And some of you feel that. Even in a culture that is not being hostilely or physically persecuted. But yet we feel that. And so that these letters come into us. And whether it involves possible exile or imprisonment or social rejection or slander or economic exploitation or violence, the response is endurance. John is now told to write what he sees. Now, so far, this opens like any other letter, but now John sees something he's not expecting. Let me ask you, let me ask uh, the young people, what do you think Jesus looks like? Now, we live in a time when all these images and you have the Jesus film and you have Sunday school drawings and, you know, some of those are helpful. But 
What do you think he looked like? And we know he had a beard, right? It was plucked out. We knew he looked Jewish. We, knew, we know that when he was crucified, as Isaiah said, his, his visage was so marred beyond any resemblance of a human being. John knew what Jesus looked like. John walked with him. John saw the miracles. John ate with him. John was there at the Last Supper. John had put his head down on Jesus. But when John turns around, this is not what he was expecting. And you are now given a vision of the exalted Christ. See, the Gospels capture him in his humility. And Revelation, now you see him in his exaltation. But the first thing he sees, it's interesting, I turned around to see the voice. You can't really see a voice, but you're looking for the source of the voice, right? He turns around to see, but the first thing he sees is not the Son of Man. What's the first thing he sees? Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw what? Seven golden lampstands. The first thing he sees is not the source of the voice, but a stand on which oil lamps are set. Most likely he's thinking about the menorah, the seven-branched lamp stand that Zechariah 4 focuses on. But the big picture that we're supposed to get is John turns around, he sees lampstands, there's seven of them, it corresponds to the number of the churches, and the lampstands, what is the purpose of a lampstand? To provide light. And he sees seven golden lampstands that are to provide light. And the interpretive key, look at verse 20, because we, we don't have to wrestle around with really what does this mean. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the what? The seven churches. Real people, real gatherings of Jesus followers that are supposed to provide real light in a dark hostile environment. The idea of us being a witness or the church being a light and a witness is further described with the two witnesses in chapter 11, two very interesting uh, witnesses. But the witnesses are described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. So you have the churches that are to be a source of light amidst darkness and a source of witness of truth to unbelieving people. But then after he turns, he sees them. But then what does he see? What does he see amidst the lampstands? He sees one like the Son of Man. Human-like, but not exactly. And you have this Son of Man image from Daniel and the Gospels and Revelation that is a messianic figure but that is also closely connected to deity. Now look at verse 13. I want you to notice something about the proximity of Christ, if you would, or his presence. First, in verse 13, he is in the midst of the lampstands. Now, whether, they're, whether John sees him as that taller center called the fourth candle of the menorah, or whether he is just walking amidst these lampstands, Christ is there. He's closely and intimately connected with the church. And Christ is here. 
in our midst. Who loves his bride. Who expects us to be a source of light rather than darkness. And he is close at hand. Second, in verse 16, he is holding something. So he is close proximity in the midst of the churches. And in those churches, he is holding the stars or the messengers. This is going to be repeated in chapter 2, verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Third, look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you know Christ is involved in the life of his gathered people? He is in our midst, supporting us during persecution and trial. He is intimately aware of the church's condition. He sees through facades and hypocrisy. Because he's right here with us. You know what's encouraging most of the time? Is that he makes always right assessments. Only he can come into a church and determine whether it is healthy or whether it's not. He can come in and he can affirm or he can rebuke. He can condemn or he can commend. And that's what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 2 to 3. He's here. He's in our midst. He was in the midst of some very troubled churches in Asia Minor. He was in the midst of churches that were tolerating cults. He was walking in the midst of churches where he was about to put their light out because they no longer, they no longer reflected his glory to the world. That It was better not to have that than to have something that didn't represent him well. But not only Christ's presence, but Christ's power and glory. There are eight images drawn from the Old Testament intended to introduce themes that will carry out through the rest of the book of Revelation. And the accumulated images are not necessarily meant to tell us exactly what Jesus looks like. Rather, they are supposed to display his power and his glory and his authority. Right? Blazing eyes, bronze feet, a literal sword coming out of his mouth mouth is not... Uh, what we are intended to get, but in this quick snapshot. I mean, really, John is just writing. He doesn't go through the whole Old Testament background of all these images. He just puts forward this incredible, one man says, this annihilating image of Jesus Christ. One man says, don't, don't so overdefine these that you unweave the rainbow. It's intended to give you a quick, overwhelming, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. So quickly, long robe and golden sash around his chest. Long robes and sashes were worn by high priests and dignitaries. Nothing is said of his high priestly work in this context. So we know it it is at least presenting Jesus Christ as an exalted, dignified figure. The golden sash around his chest. uh, Day laborers would wear it around their waist so they could... uh, pull up the the linen, the robe, so that they could work. In the sense that it's around his chest and it's gold is he's being presented as an honored, dignified figure. White hair. Used of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9. 
His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Notice that John keeps using a word like or as. These are metaphors. John's John's describing it as best he can in the language that he knew. And so when he sees him, he sees a long robe and a golden sash. And when he sees him, his hair is white. And then you can see him almost fumbling like wool, like snow. He's trying to use everything he can to express the extreme whiteness. Which indicates wisdom and respect. You know, John got a glimpse of this on another occasion at the transfiguration. And when he looked at Jesus Christ transfigured, he said this in Mark 9, 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so no one on earth could bleach them. So you have this presence of wisdom. Then you have blazing eyes. Daniel said of this vision that his eyes were like flaming torches. This is a disturbing image. Maybe the only other more disturbing image is the sword coming out of the mouth. But these blazing eyes, divine and pure insight, full penetrating knowledge of who you are. Everything. Friday night at one in the morning. Everything. Monday, midday. He knows everything. And you can pull it over on other human beings and you can deceive and you can, you can sell yourself as something you're not. But these torches, these blazing eyes see through all the facades and see you and the church, primarily the church gathered for who we really are. He sees us. He's in our midst walking and he sees us. Bronze feet. Daniel said his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Glory and strength. That of a warrior. The kiln, the kiln would be brought to a white hot heat to refine and purify. You have stability. You have the, the ability to crush opponents in your way. Actually, when he's writing to the church and, and as, as the letters unfold to each of the seven churches, uh, typically one of these descriptions of Christ's deity and glory are found in that letter. And in the letter to the church, the bronze feet refer to judgment. The image is that of strength and the purity of his judgment. His powerful voice. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, I loved taking people to the Victoria Falls for the first time in high water, not low water. Low water is fun because you can hike you can hike to the middle and, you know, the Zimbabwe-Zambia borders right there in the middle of uh, the Zambezi River. And, but at high water, you don't even get near the edge and you come down and you can see them selling raincoats and plastic bags to put your camera in. And you can tell the people that haven't been there before because they opt not for the rain poncho or the bag. And they go on and rush on ahead. And, and as you come down, you can start hearing this. By the time you come out to the first overlook, I can't even mimic the sound, but it is so strong, you can't even talk to the person next to you. And it's just water. And that's what his voice is like. There's no competitor. There's no contest. There's this voice 
that is not just loud and piercing and obnoxious. It comes with authority that what he says will happen. He's walking amidst the church, and with those eyes he sees people that say, "Mm, nah, I'm more authoritative. I'm going to run my own life. Hmm. No, I'm going, to treat, I'm going to treat the church like a Chinese buffet. A little some of that. Well, yeah, I'd really, I think I could get better food somewhere else. With his eyes, he sees. And with his voice, he speaks. It's a powerful voice. And maybe for John, as he's on the island of Patmos, it was the incessant crashing waves of the Aegean Sea, this continuous pounding authority. And that's the voice of Christ. Not the waves, but like the waves. Then what becomes encouraging is in his right hand are stars. Something in the right hand signifies power and authority. To hold something means to take possession or to control it, to keep and preserve. And probably all of those ideas is connected here. And verse 20 again is the interpretive key. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels could mean angels. Angels means messengers. So it could be the ones who are proclaiming the message. Seven corresponds simply to the number of churches. To read into it too far is to go too far. The image is that of Christ possessing and protecting the messengers of the church. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is another picture of judgment. It's not just that the words he speaks, like Hebrews 4.12, are powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, um, because here the word sword occurs, the word that is used for sword occurs only here, and it's the large, broad Thracian sword. It is this huge sword. So if you go to Hebrews 4.12, it's sort of the small fighting sword that the Romans would use. This is a huge sword. And the picture is that it comes out of his mouth and that sword is used for advance and the taking down of opposition. But the Gentile nations rage against him. And here comes one with a two-edged sword taking back what is his. Judicial authority. Isaiah 11.4 says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's the picture. The picture isn't just read God's word more, though you should. The picture is that of an unstoppable Son of man with a two-edged fighting sword, chopping down his enemies. And folks, you cannot get rid and remove and cut out of your scriptures these warrior pictures that are attributed to God and his son. The image is that of an uncontested proclamation of judgment. And then finally, John just says in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Just overwhelming glory. The image, of, the image of you almost have to put your face down. And you put all that together. 
And you have the vision of the exalted Christ. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, John's response. I want you to look at this. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But wait, John walked three, three and a half years with him. John was the beloved disciple. John was invited to be with Peter and James on the top of the mountain where he saw Christ transfigured. And yet he sees this and he falls down as though dead. But I love this. But he laid his right hand on me saying, and this is what the Son of Man says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. John saw a true, full, accurate picture of the glory of Christ. And he falls down as dead. And Jesus comes and he touches him. He places his hand on him. And he says, fear not. Why not fear in the light of this image? And I'm going to ask you, are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to see him? Because he is coming back. Why not fear? First, he is the sovereign one. I am the first and the last. The title used of God in Isaiah 41, 44, 48. And this corresponds to what was already said in verses 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Greek language, the first character, the last character, it's like the A to Z. There is nothing that I am not. He is creator and sovereign over all history. He is the origin and goal of all history. He spoke, he spoke the first word in creation. He will have the last word in the new creation. Second, he is the eternal one because he adds this and the living one. And I'm going to, that, that, that's not necessarily to emphasize that he is now alive. He's going to say that later. But this is to emphasize not just sovereignty, but eternality, which is the, the complete antithesis to the pagan idols that are dead and powerless. Why not fear? He's the sovereign one. He's the eternal one. Third, he is the living one. I died. By the way, that helps you recognize who it is that's speaking, right? It's Jesus Christ. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And, and this does highlight the death and resurrection of Christ but the reality also of his eternality, he conquered death. In the beginning, he was with God. Life was in himself. And fourth, he is the conquering one. I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay, so we've been pushing through this. So not a trick question. What do keys do? They get lost, right? No, what do keys do? What's the purpose of keys? They open things. They give you access. In that sense, you have authority. We have authority of our house because we lock it all up in that sense. And we have the keys to open things. And, and Satan is not in charge of death and Hades. Jesus Christ is. That's why we don't fear. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He has authority and access to the gates. And just as he 
rose from the dead. He is the first fruits that when we die, we too shall rise from the dead. Therefore, John, do not fear. Do not fear. Finally, he's told in verse 19, right therefore, he's going to be commissioned again. It gives a basic outline of the book. Right therefore, the things that you have seen, that was the vision. Those that are, that's the condition of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this, chapters 4 to the end of the book, future things. So, so what? All right, that's the question we come down to. So what? Revelation chapter 1, so what? Are you ready for Christ's return? Many of you are. Maybe most of you are. But some of you are not. And if you are not his subject now, you can be and you need to be. Because regardless, on the other side of eternity, I mean, when you walk through that door of death and you launch out into eternity, you will bow the knee and you will confess him as Lord, but you will not confess him as Savior. So are you ready for Christ's return? How? Let me just read this to you. This is what Romans says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not that he's my religious answer, not that he's a therapeutic, moralistic God that makes me feel better. If you confess with your mouth that he's Lord, he's king, sovereign, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Safe. Believer, if you are saved... The vision of the glorified and exalted Christ is to have an effect upon his church. If you have submitted to his reign and rule, then live like you're his follower. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And as Christ walks amidst these churches... We're going to see him in the coming weeks. He's going to correct a church for love deficient orthodoxy. Oh, they claim to the fundamentals of the word, but they had not love. He comforts a suffering church. He confronts a compromised testimony. He deals with a corrupted ministry in Thyatira. He rebukes lifeless nominalism in Sardis. He confirms faithful service in Philadelphia and he warns against apathetic self-sufficiency in Laodicea. So, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Submit to the reign of Christ because of who he is, what he has done, and what he is about to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and we're going to respond to God's word through song. 
And if you are not sure, you're confused about something you heard this morning, or this seems very exclusive, that Jesus said he's the way, the truth, the life. No one goes unto the Father except through him. If you're confused and you're like, I don't think I am safe, then would you come talk to me or to someone in our church that Pastor Matt and I can point you to and just get the answers that you need. But remember, hurting church, Jesus says, fear not. Do not fear. Even amidst persecution and tribulation, you don't have to fear if you're in a right relationship with him. Let's pray.